0: Section Twenty-One of Coningsby, or the New Generation, by Benjamin Disraeli. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Five, Chapter Five. It was not with feelings of extreme satisfaction that Mr. Rigby returned to London. The loss of Hellingsley followed by the loss of the borough to Hellingsley's successful master were not precisely the incidents which would be adduced as evidence of mr rigby's good management or good fortune hitherto that gentleman had persuaded the world that he was not only very clever but that he was also always in luck a quality which many appreciate more even than capacity his reputation was unquestionably damaged both with his patron and his party but what the tapers and the tadpoles thought or said, what even might be the injurious effect on his own career of the loss of this election, assumed an insignificant character when compared with its influence on the temper and disposition of the Marquis of Monmouth. And yet his carriage is now entering the courtyard of Monmouth House, and in all probability a few minutes would introduce him to that presence before which he had ere this trembled the marquis was at home and anxious to see mr rigby in a few minutes that gentleman was ascending the private staircase entering the antechamber, and waiting to be received in the little saloon exactly as our coningsby did more than five years ago scarcely less agitated but by feelings of a very different character well you made a good fight of it exclaimed the marquis in a cheerful and cordial tone as mr rigby entered his dressing-room "'Patience, we shall win next time.' This reception instantly reassured the defeated candidate, though its contrast to that which he expected rather perplexed him. He entered into the details of the election, talked rapidly of the next registration, the propriety of petitioning, accustomed himself to hearing his voice with its habitual volubility in a chamber where he had feared it might not sound for some time, damn politics said the marquis these fellows are in it for this parliament and i am really weary of the whole affair i begin to think the duke was right and it would have been best to have left them to themselves i am glad you have come up at once for i want you the fact is i am going to be married this was not a startling announcement to mr rigby he was prepared for it though scarcely could have hoped that he would have been favoured with it on the present occasion instead of a morose comment on his misfortunes marriage then was the predominant idea of lord monmouth at the present moment in whose absorbing interest all vexations were forgotten fortunate rigby disgusted by the failure of his political combinations his disappointments in not dictating to the country and not carrying the borough and the slight prospect at present of obtaining the great object of his ambition "'Lord Monmouth, had resolved to precipitate his fate, "'was about to marry immediately, and quit England. "'You will be wanted, Rigby,' continued the marquis. "'We must have a couple of trustees, and I have thought of you as one. "'You know you are my executor, "'and it is better not to bring in unnecessarily new names "'into the management of my affairs. "'Lord Eskdale will act with you.' "'Rigby, then, after all, was a lucky man.' after such a succession of failures he had returned only to receive fresh and the most delicate marks of his patron's good feeling and consideration lord monmouth's trustee and executor you know you are my executor sublime truth it ought to be blazoned in letters of gold in the most conspicuous part of Rigby's library to remind him perpetually of his great and impending destiny Lord Monmouth's executor, and very probably one of his residuary legatees. A legatee of some sort he knew he was. What a splendid memento mori! What cared Rigby for the borough of Darlford? And as for his political friends, he wished them joy of their barren benches. Nothing was lost by not being in this Parliament. It was then with sincerity that Rigby offered his congratulations to his patron. He praised the judicious alliance, accompanied by every circumstance conducive to worldly happiness, distinguished beauty, perfect temper, princely rank. Rigby, who had hardly got out of his hustings vein, was most eloquent in his praises of Madame Colonna. An amiable woman, said Lord Monmouth, and very handsome. I always admired her. And an agreeable person, too. I dare say a very good temper. "'but I am not going to marry her.' "'Might I then ask who—' "'Her stepdaughter, the Princess Lucretia,' replied the marquis quietly, "'looking at his ring. "'Here was a thunderbolt.' "'Rigby had made another mistake. "'He had been working all this time for the wrong woman. "'The consciousness of being a trustee alone sustained him. "'There was an inevitable pause. "'The marquis would not speak, however, and Rigby must—' He babbled rather incoherently about the Princess Lucretia being admired by everybody, also that she was the most fortunate of women, as well as the most accomplished. He was just beginning to say he had known her from a child, when discretion stopped his tongue, which had a habit of running on somewhat rashly. But Rigby, though he often blundered in his talk, had the talent of extricating himself from the consequence of his mistakes and madame must be highly gratified by all this observed mr rigby with an inquiring accent he was dying to learn how she had first received the intelligence and congratulated himself that his absence at his contest had preserved him from the storm madame colonna knows nothing of our intentions said lord monmouth and by the by that is the very business on which i wish to see you rigby i wish you to communicate them to her we are to be married and immediately it would gratify me that the wife of lucretia's father should attend our wedding you understand exactly what i mean Rigby. i must have no scenes always happy to see the princess colonna under my roof but then i like to live quietly particularly at present harassed as i have been by the loss of these elections by all this bad mismanagement and by all these disappointments on subjects in which I was led to believe success was certain, Madame Colonna is at home, and the Marquis bowed Mister Rigby out of the room. End of Chapter Five. Chapter Six: The departure of Sidonia from Coningsby Castle in the autumn determined the Princess Lucretia on a step which had for some time before his arrival occupied her brooding imagination nature had bestowed on this lady an ambitious soul and a subtle spirit she could dare much and could execute finely above all things she coveted power and though not free from the characteristic susceptibility of her sex the qualities that could engage her passions or fascinate her fancy must partake of that intellectual eminence which distinguished her though the princess lucretia in a short space of time had seen much of the world she had as yet encountered no hero. In the admirers whom her rank, and sometimes her intelligence, assembled around her, her master had not yet appeared. Her heart had not trembled before any of those brilliant forms whom she was told her sex admired, nor did she envy any one the homage which she did not appreciate. There was, therefore, no disturbing element in the worldly calculations which she applied to that question which is, to woman, what a career is to man, the question of marriage. She would marry to gain power, and therefore she wished to marry the powerful. Lord Eskdale hovered around her, and she liked him. She admired his incomparable shrewdness, his freedom from ordinary prejudices, his selfishness which was always good-natured, and the imperturbability that was not callous but lord eskdale had hovered round many it was his easy habit he liked clever women young but who had seen something of the world the princess lucretia pleased him much with the form and mind of a woman even in the nursery he had watched her development with interest and had witnessed her launch in that world where she floated at once with as much dignity and consciousness of superior power as if she had braved for seasons its waves and its tempests. Musing over Lord Eskdale, the mind of Lucretia was drawn to the image of his friend, her friend, the friend of her parents. And why not marry Lord Monmouth? The idea pleased her. There was something great in the conception, difficult and strange. The result, if achieved, would give her all that she desired. She devoted her mind to this secret thought. She had no confidence. She concentrated her intellect on one point, and that was to fascinate the grandfather of Coningsby, while her stepmother was plotting that she should marry his grandson. The volition of Lucretia Colonna was, if not supreme, of a power most difficult to resist. There was something charm-like and alluring in the conversation of one who was silent to all others something in the tones of her low rich voice which acted singularly on the nervous system. It was the voice of the serpent. Indeed there was an undulating movement in Lucretia when she approached you which irresistibly reminded you of that mysterious animal. Lord Monmouth was not insensible to the spell, though totally unconscious of its purpose. He found the society of Lucretia very agreeable to him she was animated intelligent original her inquiries were stimulating her comments on what she saw and heard and read racy and often indicating a fine humour but all this was reserved for his ear before her parents as before all others lucretia was silent a little scornful never communicating never giving nor seeking amusement shut up in herself Lord Monmouth fell, therefore, into the habit of riding and driving with Lucretia alone. It was an arrangement which he found made his life more pleasant. Nor was it displeasing to Madame Colonna. She looked upon Lord Monmouth's fancy for Lucretia as a fresh tie for them all. Even the prince, when his wife called his attention to the circumstance, observed it with satisfaction. It was a circumstance which represented in his mind a continuance of good eating and good drinking, fine horses, luxurious baths, unceasing billiards. In this state of affairs appeared Sidonia, known before to her stepmother, but seen by Lucretia for the first time. Truly he came, saw, and conquered. Those eyes that rarely met another's were fixed upon his searching, yet unimpassioned glance. She listened to that voice, full of music, yet void of tenderness, and the spirit of Lucretia Colonna bowed before an intelligence that commanded sympathy, yet offered none. Lucretia naturally possessed great qualities as well as great talents. Under a genial influence her education might have formed a being capable of imparting and receiving happiness. But she found herself without a guide, her father offered her no love, her stepmother gained from her no respect. Her literary education was the result of her own strong mind and inquisitive spirit. She valued knowledge, and she therefore acquired it. But not a single moral principle or a single religious truth had ever been instilled into her being. Frequent absence from her own country had by degrees broken off even an habitual observance of the forms of her creed, while a life of undisturbed indulgence, void of all anxiety and care, while it preserved her from many of the temptations to vice, deprived her of that wisdom more precious than rubies which adversity and affliction, the struggles and the sorrows of existence, can alone impart. Lucretia had passed her life in a refined, but rather dissolute society. Not indeed that a word could call forth a maiden blush, conduct that could pain the purest feelings, could be heard or witnessed in those polished and luxurious circles. The most exquisite taste pervaded their atmosphere, and the uninitiated who found themselves in those perfumed chambers and those golden saloons might believe, from all that passed before them, that their inhabitants were as pure, as orderly, and as irreproachable as their furniture. But among the habitual dwellers in these delicate halls there was a tacit understanding, a prevalent doctrine that required no formal exposition, no proofs and illustrations, no comment and no gloss, which was indeed rather a traditional conviction than an imparted dogma that the exoteric public were, on many subjects, the victims of very vulgar prejudices, which these enlightened personages wished neither to disturb nor to adopt. A being of such a temper, bred in such a manner, a woman full of intellect and ambition, daring and lawless and satiated with prosperity, is not made for equable fortunes and a uniform existence. She would have sacrificed the world for Sidonia, for he had touched the fervent imagination that none before could approach. But that inscrutable man would not read the secret of her heart, and prompted alike by pique, the love of power, and a weariness of her present life, Lucretia resolved on that great result which Mr. Rigby is now about to communicate to the Princess Colonna about half an hour after mr Rigby had entered that lady's apartments, it seemed that all the bells of Monmouth House were ringing at the same time. The sound even reached the Marquis in his luxurious recess, who immediately took a pinch of snuff and ordered his valet to lock the door of the antechamber. The Princess Lucretia, too, heard the sounds. She was lying on a sofa in her boudoir, reading the Inferno and immediately mustered her garrison in the form of a French maid, and gave directions that no one should be admitted. Both the marquis and his intended bride felt that a crisis was at hand, and resolved to participate in no scenes. The ringing ceased, there was again silence. Then there was another ring, a short, hasty and violent pull, followed by some slamming of doors the servants who were all on the alert and had advantages of hearing and observation denied to their secluded master caught a glimpse of mr rigby endeavouring gently to draw back into her apartment madame colonna furious amid his deprecatory exclamations for heaven's sake my dear madame for your own sake no really i assure you you are quite wrong you are indeed it is a complete misapprehension i will explain everything i entreat i implore whatever you like just what you please only listen then the lady with a mantling visage and flashing eye violently closing the door was again lost to their sight a few minutes after there was a moderate ring and mr rigby coming out of the apartments with his cravat a little out of order as if he had had a violent shaking met the servant who would have entered. "'Order Madame Colonna's travelling-carriage,' he exclaimed in a loud voice, "'and send Mademoiselle Conrad here directly. "'I don't think the fellow hears me,' added Mr. Rigby, and following the servant, he added in a low tone and with a significant glance, "'No travelling-carriage? No Mademoiselle Conrad? Order the Britska round as usual.' Nearly another hour passed. There was another ring, very moderate indeed. The servant was informed that Madame Colonna was coming down, and she appeared as usual. In a beautiful morning dress, and leaning on the arm of Mr. Rigby, she descended the stairs, and was handed into her carriage by that gentleman, who, seating himself by her side, ordered them to drive to Richmond lord monmouth having been informed that all was calm and that madame colonna attended by mr rigby had gone to richmond ordered his carriage and accompanied by lucretia and lucian gay departed immediately for blackwall where in whitebait a quiet bottle of claret the society of his agreeable friends and the contemplation of the passing steamers he found a mild distraction and an amusing repose Mr. Rigby reported that evening to the Marquis on his return that all was arranged and tranquil. Perhaps he exaggerated the difficulties to increase the service, but according to his account they were considerable. It required some time to make Madame Colonna comprehend the nature of his communication. All Rigby's diplomatic skill was expended in the gradual development. When it was once fairly put before her, the effect was appalling. That was the first great ringing of bells. Rigby softened a little what he had personally endured, but he confessed she sprang at him like a tigress balked of her prey, and poured forth on him a volume of epithets, many of which Rigby really deserved. But after all, in the present instance, he was not treacherous, only base, which he always was. Then she fell into a passion of tears, and vowed frequently that she was not weeping for herself, but only for that dear Mr. Coningsby, who had been treated so infamously and robbed of Lucretia, and whose heart she knew must break. It seemed that Rigby stemmed the first violence of her emotion by mysterious intimations of an important communication that he had to make, and piquing her curiosity, he calmed her passion. But really, having nothing to say, he was nearly involved in fresh dangers he took refuge in the affectation of great agitation which prevented exposition the lady then insisted on her travelling carriage being ordered and packed as she was determined to set out for rome that afternoon this little occurrence gave rigby some few minutes to collect himself at the end of which he made the princess several announcements of intended arrangements all of which pleased her mightily, though they were so inconsistent with each other, that if she had not been a woman in a passion, she must have detected that Rigby was lying. He assured her almost in the same breath that she was never to be separated from them, and that she was to have any establishment in any country she liked. He talked wildly of equipages, diamonds, shawls, opera-boxes, and while her mind was bewildered with these dazzling objects he with intrepid gravity consulted her as to the exact amount she would like to have apportioned independent of her general revenue for the purposes of charity at the end of two hours exhausted by her rage and soothed by these visions madame colonna having grown calm and reasonable sighed and murmured a complaint that lord monmouth ought to have communicated this important intelligence in person upon this rigby instantly assured her that lord monmouth had been for some time waiting to do so but in consequence of her lengthened interview with rigby his lordship had departed for richmond with lucretia where he hoped that madame colonna and mr rigby would join him so it ended with a morning drive and suburban dinner rigby after what he had gone through finding no difficulty in accounting for the other guests not being present and bringing home madame colonna in the evening at times almost as gay and good-tempered as usual and almost oblivious of her disappointment when the marquis met madame colonna he embraced her with great courtliness and from that time consulted her on every arrangement he took a very early occasion of presenting her with a diamond necklace of great value. The marquis was fond of making presents to persons to whom he thought he had not behaved very well, and who yet spared him scenes. The marriage speedily followed, by special licence, at the villa of the Right Honourable Nicholas Rigby, who gave away the bride. The wedding was very select, but brilliant as the diamond necklace, a royal duke and duchess lady st julian's and a few others mr ormsby presented the bride with a bouquet of precious stones and lord eskdale with a french fan in a diamond frame it was a fine day lord monmouth calm as if he were winning the saint leger lucretia universally recognized as a beauty all the guests gay the princess colonna especially the travelling carriage is at the door which is to bear away the happy pair Madame Colonna embraces Lucretia, the Marquis gives a grand bow, they are gone. The guests remain a while. A prince of the blood will propose a toast. There is another glass of champagne quaffed, another ortolan devoured, and then they rise and disperse. Madame Colonna leaves with the Lady St. Julian's, whose guest for a while she is to become, and in a few minutes their host is alone mr rigby retired into his library the repose of the chamber must have been grateful to his feelings after all this distraction it was spacious well stored classically adorned and opened on a beautiful lawn rigby threw himself into an ample chair crossed his legs and resting his head on his arm apparently fell into deep contemplation he had some cause for reflection and though we did once venture to affirm that Rigby never either thought or felt, this perhaps may be the exception that proves the rule. He could scarcely refrain from pondering over the strange event which he had witnessed, and at which he had assisted. It was an incident that might exercise considerable influence over his fortunes his patron married and married to one who certainly did not offer to mr rigby such a prospect of easy management as her stepmother here were new influences arising new characters new situations new contingencies was he thinking of all this he suddenly jumps up hurries to a shelf and takes down a volume it is his interleaved peerage of which for 20 years he had been threatening an addition turning to the marquisate of monmouth he took up his pen and thus made the necessary entry married second time august third eighteen thirty seven the princess lucretia colonna daughter of prince paul colonna born at rome february sixteenth eighteen nineteen that was what mr rigby called a great fact there was not a peerage compiler in england who had that date save himself before we close this slight narrative of the domestic incidents that occurred in the family of his grandfather since Coningsby quitted the castle, we must not forget to mention what happened to Vilbeck and Flora. Lord Monmouth took a great liking to the manager. He found him very clever in many things, independently of his profession. He was useful to Lord Monmouth, and did his work in an agreeable manner and the future lady monmouth was accustomed to flora and found her useful too and did not like to lose her and so the marquis turning all the circumstances in his mind and being convinced that vilbeck could never succeed to any extent in england in his profession and probably nowhere else appointed him to vilbeck's infinite satisfaction intendant of his household with a considerable salary while flora still lived with her kind stepfather. End of chapter six. Chapter seven. Another year elapsed, not so fruitful in incidents to Coningsby as the preceding ones, and yet not unprofitably passed. It had been spent in the almost unremitting cultivation of his intelligence. He had read deeply and extensively, digested his acquisitions, and had practised himself in surveying them free from those conventional conclusions and those traditionary interferences that surrounded him. Although he had renounced his once-cherished purpose of trying for university honours, an aim which he found discordant with the investigations on which his mind was bent, he had rarely quitted Cambridge. The society of his friends, the great convenience of public libraries, and the general tone of studious life around, rendered a university for him a genial residence there is a moment in life when the pride and thirst of knowledge seem to absorb our being and so it happened now to coningsby who felt each day stronger in his intellectual resources and each day more anxious and avid to increase them the habits of public discussion fostered by the debating society were also for coningsby no inconsiderable tie to the university this was the arena in which he felt himself at home the promise of his Eton days was here fulfilled and while his friends listened to his sustained argument or his impassioned declamation the prompt reply or the apt retort they looked forward with pride through the vista of years to the time when the hero of the youthful club should convince or dazzle in the senate it is probable then that he would have remained at cambridge with slight intervals until he had taken his degree had not circumstances occurred which gave altogether a new turn to his thoughts when lord monmouth had fixed his wedding day he had written himself to coningsby to announce his intended marriage and to request his grandson's presence at the ceremony the letter was more than kind it was warm and generous he assured his grandson that this alliance should make no difference in the very ample provision which he had long intended for him, that he should ever esteem Coningsby his nearest relative, and that while his death would bring to Coningsby as considerable an independence as an English gentleman need desire, so in his lifetime Coningsby should ever be supported as became his birth, breeding, and future prospects. Lord Monmouth had mentioned to Lucretia that he was about to invite his grandson to their wedding, and the lady had received the intimation with satisfaction. It so happened that a few hours after, Lucretia, who now entered the private rooms of Lord Monmouth without previously announcing her arrival, met Vilbeck with a letter to Coningsby in his hand. Lucretia took it away from him, and said it should be posted with her own letters, it never reached its destination our friend learned the marriage from the newspapers which somewhat astounded him but coningsby was fond of his grandfather and he wrote lord monmouth a letter of congratulation full of feeling and ingenuousness and which while it much pleased the person to whom it was addressed unintentionally convinced him that coningsby had never received his original communication lord monmouth spoke to Villebeck, who could throw sufficient light upon the subject but it was never mentioned to lady monmouth the marquis was a man who always found out everything and enjoyed the secret rather more than a year after the marriage when coningsby had completed his twenty-first year the year which he had passed so quietly at cambridge he received a letter from his grandfather informing him that after a variety of movements Lady Monmouth and himself were established in Paris for the season, and desiring that he would not fail to come over as soon as practicable, and pay them as long a visit as the regulations of the university would permit. So, at the close of the December term, Coningsby quitted Cambridge for Paris. Passing through London, he made his first visit to his banker at Charing Cross, on whom he had periodically drawn since he commenced his college life. He was in the outer counting-house, making some inquiries about a letter of credit, when one of the partners came out from an inner room and invited him to enter. This firm had been for generations the bankers of the Coningsby family, and it appeared that there was a sealed box in their possession which had belonged to the father of Coningsby, and they wished to take this opportunity of delivering it to his son. This communication deeply interested him and as he was alone in London at a hotel, and on the wing for a foreign country, he requested permission at once to examine it, in order that he might again deposit it with them. So he was shown into a private room for that purpose. The seal was broken, the box was full of papers, chiefly correspondence. Among them was a packet described as letters from My dear Helen, the mother of Coningsby." in the interior of this packet there was a miniature of that mother he looked at it put it down looked at it again and again he could not be mistaken there was the same blue fillet in the bright hair it was an exact copy of that portrait which had so greatly excited his attention when at millbank this was a mysterious and singularly perplexing incident it greatly agitated him he was alone in the room when he made the discovery when he had recovered himself he sealed up the contents of the box with the exception of his mother's letters and the miniature which he took away with him and then re-delivered it to his banker for custody until his return coningsby found lord and lady monmouth in a splendid hotel in the faubourg saint honore near the english embassy his grandfather looked at him with marked attention and received him with evident satisfaction. Indeed, Lord Monmouth was greatly pleased that Harry had come to Paris. It was the university of the world where everybody should graduate. Paris and London ought to be the great objects of all travellers, the rest was mere landscape. It cannot be denied that between Lucretia and Coningsby there existed from the first a certain antipathy and though circumstances for a short time had apparently removed or modified the aversion the manner of the lady when coningsby was ushered into her boudoir resplendent with all that parisian taste and luxury could devise was characterized by that frigid politeness which had preceded the days of their more genial acquaintance if the manner of lucretia were the same as before her marriage a considerable change might however be observed in her appearance her fine form had become more developed while her dress that she once neglected was elaborate and gorgeous and of the last mode lucretia was the fashion of paris a great lady greatly admired a guest under such a roof however coningsby was at once launched into the most brilliant circles of parisian society which he found fascinating the art of society is without doubt perfectly comprehended and completely practised in the bright metropolis of france an englishman cannot enter a saloon without instantly feeling he is among a race more social than his compatriots what for example is more consummate than the manner in which a french lady receives her guests she unites graceful repose and unaffected dignity with the most amiable regard for others she sees every one she speaks to every one she sees them at the right moment she says the right thing it is utterly impossible to detect any difference in the position of her guests by the spirit in which she welcomes them there is indeed throughout every circle of parisian society from the chateau to the cabaret a sincere homage to intellect and this without any maudlin sentiment None sooner than the Parisians can draw the line between factitious notoriety and honest fame, or sooner distinguish between the counterfeit celebrity and the standard reputation. In England, we too often alternate between a supercilious neglect of genius and a rhapsodical pursuit of quacks. In England, when a new character appears in our circles, the first question always is, who is he? In France, it is, what is he? In England, how much a year? In France, what has he done? End of chapter 7